Topic General History Art of AI and Automation Author Andrew Liu Weida Hi, my name is Andrew. What we want to do in the next uh, one hour or half an hour is to explain the technology shift happening in the world, especially in Singapore. Singapore has been investing in some of the initiative in becoming an AI tech hub in recent times. So in that short time, mobile and cloud have become the two dominant platform shifts that create tons of opportunities for the global society and other countries. Now as we speak, AI is dominating the agenda of all the tech giant companies, and they are the most important companies in Silicon Valley and outside Silicon Valley. Look at Sundai Pichai from Google and Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook. These CEOs are saying that artificial intelligence are the hearts of what we are doing. AI is guiding our R&D agenda. So is this something so new that we haven't even heard of? So it turns out that human has been dreaming and making machines that behave like humans or exhibit human intelligence. The ancient Chinese civilization have been trying to create mechanics that behave like automatons or autonomous tools. In science fiction, we have the Frankenstein movie and the recent Star Wars movies and so on. All of these feed the human impulse that we can create something that behaves like human. That's because people are curious. So how did AI get started? Okay, so what is AI? Artificial intelligence is basically a subject that is exhibited when machines or applications exhibit or mimic human behavior or human intelligence. So if AI behaves like the human being mind, then how should we think about AI? Like a servant, our human mind can serve to help us and to help each other, or our human minds can also destroy us when we give into evil thoughts and a callous decision that we did not think deeply and slowly about it. This is also resonated by Christian Louis Langer, who was a Norwegian historian and political scientist. Langer shared the Nobel Peace Prize with Yaman Brengtink in 1921. He believed that technology is a useful servant but a dangerous master. The famous Ghanaian proverb mentioned a slave does not choose his master. And because of that, we need to learn how to master AI. So, how can we master AI? If we don't collectively have the responsibility to share this knowledge and discuss it, what would happen? Henry Wilson Allen, the author of over 50 novels, a five-time winner of the Spur Award from the Western Writers of America, and a recipient of the Levi Strauss Award for Lifetime Achievement, believe that knowledge should be shared so that humanity can be better control its destiny. That's why he said this, Keep it a secret and it's your slave. Tell it and it's your master. In the same fashion, I'm here to explain the history of AI and what is AI in as simple as I can so that we hopefully can be its master. We think AI has a profound impact to our daily lives in recent times and into the near future. Yet at the same time, a lot of my friends and the public is clueless about what is AI and what is the history of AI. Understanding the history of AI, we appreciate the implication of artificial intelligence and most importantly not worry about effects of AI because we understand the limitation. You know, There are seven key schools of thoughts. Let me quickly describe the overview about these schools of thoughts and then we dive deep into them with the stories and histories. The most current ones that we often hear about is machine learning. 
and there's this class of study that uses data to analyze to decipher patterns to learn to predict and to automate tasks within machine learning we have others but the main driving forces are deep learning and predictive analytics before you can learn to predict or learn to automate complex tasks you probably need to talk to the machine and the machine needs to understand you that's natural language processing or NLP in short so how about you translate verbal communication to digital beats that's speech to text translation what about the other way around that's text to speech translation suppose you get an expert you codify their thinking processes and workflow using machine learning speech recognitions NLP you might get an expert system that can solve a problem like an expert. So is driverless car an expert system? Now that's if you add planning, navigation and optimization. Planning, navigation and optimization is a category of AI that figures out the possibilities of different paths and options under a set of constraints to reach a particular goal. And if you put these into a moving machine with smart sensors, you get robots. If you want moving drones or robots that can see, you give them vision. So here are the basic key schools of thoughts. Have this picture at the back of your mind as I share with you the stories of these disciplines over time. To understand the history, we have to go back in time. There are currently three different stories that are commonly shared as the key historical chapters of AI. The history of planning and scheduling, the history of predictive analytics, and the modern history of AI. So let's begin with the history of planning, scheduling, and optimization. In 1754, Joseph Louis Lagrangian was a mathematician discovered a method of maximizing and minimizing functionals. Lagrangian wrote several letters to Leonhard Euler to describe his results, and as such, Lagrangian created the Lagrangian optimization technique. Because of that creation, we are able to find the maximum or minimum value of a function by changing different parameters subject to various constraints. Although Lagrangian created the Lagrangian optimization, Isaac Newton developed the iterative approach to enable us to compute a value on the unit-by-unit unit approach to reach that answer. Newton's method was first published in 1685 in a treatise of algebra, both historical and practical, by John Wallace. In 1690, Joseph Repson published a simplified description. In 1740, Thompson, Thomas Simpson described Newton's method as an iterative method for solving general nonlinear equation using calculus. And notes that the Newton's method can be used for solving optimization problems by setting the gradient to zero. Yet, we know that it is important to be able to computationally program these methods. The breakthrough of putting these into programs comes from George Bernard Denzer, who was an American scientist. He created this method as he was finding the best assignments of 70 people to 70 jobs. The computing power required to test all the permutations to select the best assignments is enormous. The number of possible configurations exceed the number of particles in the universe. Then Zerk created the simplex algorithm and laid the foundations for linear programming. The theory behind linear programming drastically reduced the number of possible optimum solutions that must be checked. So to recap, the idea of computing incrementally to reach a goal originates in 1685 with the help of Newton. Along the way, the mathematical solution of optimization was conceived by Lagrangian in 1754. It is only in 1947 that Denzog developed the simplex algorithm and laid the foundations of linear programming before we can apply optimization as an AI tool. Now let's turn to the history of predictive analytics. When you want to predict something, 
you need to first draw some inference from your past and then evaluate an outcome based on your inference. For example, if you notice that Singapore have been raining for the past 200 days out of 365 days, you will most likely predict that the chances for a rainy tomorrow is more than 50%. In order to reach that prediction, you associate Singapore with the historical probability of getting a rain. So how do we make the computer infer such a pattern and then make a prediction out of that pattern? Turns out back in 1859, Charles Darwin wrote The Origins of Species and that first chapter was about variations under domestication. Charles' cousin, Francis Gayton, was inspired by it, devoted much of his life to explore variations in human population. As such, he established a program which embraced different aspects of human variation, from mental characteristics to heights, from facial images to fingerprint patterns. This required inventing novel measures of traits, devising large-scale collections of data using new measures, and in the end, discovery of new statistical techniques for describing and understanding data. After examining forearm and height measurements, Golton independently rediscovered the concept of correlations in 1888 and demonstrated its application in heredity, anthropologies, and psychology. Golton's statistical study of the probability led to the concept of Galton-Watson's stochastic process. All of these laid the foundations for the modern statistics and regression. So, who put them into large-scale applications, especially business and economic applications? Turns out that Retna Fisher and Yanting Berghurt used these methods to apply economic problems. They won the first Nobel Prize for Economics in 1969 for creating econometrics a class of study that uses economics and regressions to solve business and economic problems. So these inventors created the techniques and applications. But what about those that created the first statistical computing machines? Turns out that one of the early statistical computing hardware was developed by John Antinisov. And so he was a mathematics and physics professor at the Iowa State College. Antinisov built his machine between 1940 and 1942. His machine was inspired by the Iowa State Statistical Lab, which is the first statistical lab in the United States. And that was set up by the University of Michigan by James Lover, a professor of mathematics back in 1910. And Tenisov saw his machine within the context of a computing lab, much like the statistics lab. And it would solve linear systems at low cost for technical and research purposes. Now let's turn to the modern history of AI, and that can be traced back to the year 1956. Coming back to the origins of AI, a group of scientists kicked off a series of research projects and the explicit goals of these projects is to program computers to behave like humans. So we have Marvel Minsky, John McCarty, Claudia Shannon, and Natalyn Ranchester. All of them come together at Dartmouth and say, let's do research. And the aim of research is to create artificial intelligence that behave like human beings. So from that point of view, that later became the subdiscipline of computer science. That marks the birth date of AI. So, what did they set out to do? Their research agenda basically says, computers are sophisticated, human beings are sophisticated too. Let's try to program computers to do sophisticated tasks just like human beings. So let's first try to see whether we can teach the computers to reason like a human being. In other words, to see whether a computer can play chess or solve algebra problems, or prove geometry theorems, or diagnose disease. The first uh, 
task that you see that the computer is presented with a problem and we see whether it will reason its way to the problem. So here you see AlphaGo playing Go. And this was the prototypical reasoning system that the computer scientist tries to design. You know. Another thing that we try to teach computer to do is to represent knowledge in the real world. In order for the computer to understand and interact with the people, that computer has to understand and interact with the real world. What are objects? What are people? What are language? All of these have to be programmed into the computer and to use specific languages. Lisp is a language got invented for this purpose by one of the computer scientists, John McCarty. And he was trying to teach computers about the real things in the world. The next thing that we need to do in our daily life is planning and navigating. We want to teach computers to know how to move from point A to point B. How do we know where's the bus? Where are the traffic lights? How do we stop? Which path to take? Where is the safest path to reach the destination if there are many ways to get there? So in the mid-1960s, there is a group of scientists that made the SRI robots invented at Mellow Park with cameras to plan and navigate a short path. Another thing that we want to teach computer how to do is to speak language, how to understand a language, how to understand the context of the sentences. You and I use languages to express feelings and ideas around the world in very subtle and yet powerful ways. The goal is to teach computers to understand these in as much as we can. One of the first natural language programming system was built by IBM in Georgetown. It tries to translate English to Russia and vice versa during the Cold War. So another thing that we want to teach computer to do is to perceive things in the world. How do we see in the world? How do we hear things in the world? How do we feel things in the world? The theme at Dartmouth taught the computer to perceive the five senses of human being. But the first tractable problem that they try to do is sight. So Marvel Minsky from MIT created projects to focus on how computers perceive objects in the real world. So that experiment is basically getting a robot to figure out how to pick an object, put it on top of another object. And so the computer has to use a camera to recognize that object in order to pick that up and to recognize the position of another object and place the first object onto the second one. And the hope is that if we can teach the computer to perceive with the five senses, to understand language in context, to plan, navigate, and apply logical reasoning, then perhaps we are able to get the computer to exhibit general intelligence. So what is general intelligence? It is a set of intelligence that we human beings have. It's like having emotional intelligence, the ability to read and understand and respond to another human being in a specific situation on a specific society using a specific set of moral values. It's like having the intuition that is drawn from the data and being able to explain the intuition in a common sense that the computer can apply creativity, which is the ability to see new patterns and to be able to be creative and apply that creativity to practical use. Eventually, we will be able to create a robot that think, behave, and reason like a human being. That's like the character David from the Prometheus movie, an android learning to drive a spaceship. Or another character, an android bartender, author in the movie, The Passenger 2016. And that we can no longer tell the difference between a human being and a smart robot. This is the hope that we can teach the robot the basic knowledge of a specific subject that they will be able to learn apply and think like a human on the same specific subject. And that was the goal of a very ambitious undertaking that we are seeing in the world right now. So let us now talk about the general history of AI winter. 
the period before each AI winter is a period of time where there's a lot of investment, a lot of resources dedicated by the government, dedicated by the private sector. Yet, when you think about it, in the 1960s, the computer at the time was mainframe. And so computer scientists are very visionary. What happened was a series of business cycle, which we call AI winters. People will put a lot of resource, create a lot of super cool product demo. And then what happened? And expectations fall flat, they go bust. And during each winter, people start to realize and feel disillusional about the implications of AI research. And as we know, is that these AI winters happen more than just one time. It happens a couple of times. So I'm basically going to explain to you the key AI winters. So in each cycle, I'm going to show you why people get so excited and why people suddenly get this, this illusion. And that the cycle has this name called AI winter. Bear in mind that the first AI winter begins in the 1950s and the 1960s. And there is this analogous to the, a the nuclear winter. If a nuclear explosion is caught up in an area, no one will want to go there anymore. So it's the same effect that we are seeing in AI winter. The buzz was so bad that people wonder, hey, if we should ever put resources into AI research again. It was during each AI winter that funding dries up for years and years and years. So let me take you to the stories of these cycles now. So the first cycle begins with the interest in translating between English to Russia, and that is natural basic uh, language processing, which is NLP. At that time, the Americans were getting out of the Korean War and enters into the Cold War, where the missiles imported into the Cuba from Russia, and the Americans were scared. And so the first experimental NLP begins in 1954. It seems like a simple success of translating the first 60 sentences that companies and governments dedicated a lot of resources. They were hoping that they would come out with a generalized translational system. It turns out it is incredibly hard to do. So to put that into context, here's a simple example. If you take out a Bible and you look at the following sentences, it's called the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. It is a metaphor. It's basically saying that we have the motivation to do it, but we just don't have the discipline to do so. And yet when we put that English words into Russia translation and put it back, this is what we get. The whiskey is strong, but the meat is rotten. And if you think about it for a second, it is a mistranslation. It's so obvious. This is because we as human beings understand contextual intelligence. So back in the 1960s, NLP doesn't capture the contextual meaning of sentences. It just literally translates word for word. And the linguists will call this a semantic translation error, but a computer scientist will call this a synthetic word translation. And the word for word translation at that time is not bad actually. And when you have a lot of errors in each sentences and all these errors in these sentences add up, you will get a variable, horrible text that doesn't capture the essence of the meaning that the original writer wished to express. And this is led to the first AI winter. So the disease illusion is actually about capturing the essence of contextual meaning from a body of text instead of a word-by-word -word translation. It's this beginning that the computer science realized uh, we need to capture context, we need to capture idioms and the nuances of a specific language within the body of text. And during that time, the automated processing language community said that the progress made on smart NLP capabilities was so slow that it makes no sense to inject further investment anymore. Okay, now let's look at the second AI winter. 
So after the first AI attempt to translate languages, computer scientists decide to go for another approach. So they said, perhaps we should constrain the language translation to a specific domain. And so the kind of projects that they begin moving and researching along this direction is called the micro world. And so the computer scientists community think in like this. Let's see, by further constraining AI to a specific domain knowledge, perhaps we can make further progress in the AI space. During that time, Marvel Minsky started some of these projects. He focused on developing the perceived capabilities of robots. That's like look, the robots looking at the objects through the camera and see whether it can interpret and make sense out of it. So we try to tell the computer, pick up a robot, pick up a block, put that block onto another block. And so the system has to figure out, is this even possible? So in that project, the second block is a pyramid. And it is not possible to put a cube onto a pyramid. And the system will reply that it is not possible. At the same time, Joseph Weissenbaum started a project called ELISA. And ELISA is a common reference project commonly taught in the current AI classes in the computer science faculty today. And the ELISA project is about talk therapy. Imagine you go and see a talk therapist and you want to talk about a set of problems. So this system is mimicking the behavior of a professional talk therapist or a counselor. Let me give you a clear, simple example of how this talk therapist actually work. So this is how the conversation will go. And I'm going to do it my best to do it slowly so you can keep up. And so the typical order is the user say something and the computer will say something else in response. So imagine you are sitting in front of the computer and you type this input. You, men are all alike. Computer, in what way? You, they are always bugging us something or other. Computer, can you think of a specific example? You, well, my boyfriend makes me come here. Computer, your boyfriend makes you come here. You, he said I'm depressed much of the time. Computer, I'm sorry to hear that you're depressed. You, it's true I'm very unhappy. Computer, do you think coming here will make you be unhappy? You, I need some help and that might seem like a solution. Computer, what will it mean to you if you get some help? You, well maybe I could get along well with my mother. Computer, tell me more about your family. You. My mother takes good care of me. Computer, who else in your family takes good care of you? So you see this example that is incredibly lifelike. You can imagine the exact same talk therapy, the real one, talk in the exact same fashion that the computer talked to you. People are very sophisticated and yet computer can parse that kind of language. And you can see from the above, it's so compelling. But, but, here's the problem. The problem is that as soon as you start talking to the computer, about anything else other than what the talk therapy talks about, then the illusion completely broke down. The responses becomes nonsensical. Let me give you another example. So, this is what you say. I wish to know about you. Computer, why would you say I want to know me? You, so I can write my report. Computer, what makes you believe that you can write your report? Com you, I don't understand your question. Please clarify. Computer, earlier, like you said, you would like to know me. You, yes. Computer, can you elaborate on that? You, I wish to know Elisa. Computer, how does it f 
few to one. You one what? Computer, maybe your plan has got to something to do with this. You er uh, what plan? Computer, is this because you said about your life er uh, what plan? You. It's about you. It's because of you. I said, huh? So you see that in any context other than what Elisa was programmed to think, the response from the system becomes incorrect, not relevant. It's almost as if you are playing with the syntax of the English sentence and trying to trick somebody into misunderstanding the sentence. As soon as you try to do that out of the program script, the, the illusion that Elisa is a real talk therapist no longer holds. In fact, there was a report published by the British government which states that AI has totally failed to achieve any of its grandiose objective. And so, this began the second AI winter. No more funding, no more startups. Okay, so let's think about the third AI winter, which might be the last AI winter. This Winter begins in the early 1980s, yet the activities of deep expert system actually begins in the 1960s and startups start coming in in the 1970s and companies start dabbling it in in the 1980s. So we sucked at machine translation, as in we cannot turn English sentences into meaningful Russian sentences and vice versa. We also can't seem to be effective at the micro world, be it placing blocks of objects or talking like a talk therapist. Maybe we should do the opposite way. Why don't we model on something sophisticated and incredibly complex behavior like diagnosing diseases or acting as a chemist? Let's see whether we can get into this sophisticated domain and program them so-called expert system. The intuition was that we find an expert we interview them. By doing so, we try to understand their world and codify their knowledge into an expert system. And the computers try to mimic this behavior. Here's a good example of this. In 1965, Edward Feingold-Burke and Carl Jassari wrote a system that will take the output from a mass spectrometer to identify the molecules that are chemical compounds. That inspired Edward Shortlife at Stanford in 1972 to write a program called Mycin to diagnose infectious blood diseases. So, you feed a bunch of data, that represents the symptoms and the computer diagnose what kind of infectious blood disease it is. And it was about 50-60% accuracy. Uh, however, that level of accuracy is pretty comparable to doctors doing the same diagnosis. So, they got people excited again. And so, they think like that. Hey, we can take this highly expert system and turn it into a set of rules that make the computer to become an expert. And presumably, the next expert system will be easier to build. If we just keep on iterating this, then we might write a thousands of these kind of systems, and eventually we will get a full artificial intelligence system. And so having this excitement, IBM came out with this integrated reasoning system called the Shell. And Rain Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, was interning on the system. The other thought was that if we can churn out these systems so quickly, we can solve a lot of problems where experts are in short supply. And that thought might also get humans to the promised land of AI. And during this time, there was a lot of startups that tries to build one AI system, one AI deep expert system at one time. One of the most famous startups at that time was called the Symbolics. It was a Lisp machine running on a programming language invented by John McCarty. The community got so excited uh, that this was the path forward. 
unfortunately, what happened was building one expert system didn't actually give you one egg up to build other expert system. At that time, data storage was very expensive, data computing was expensive, and everything was in silo. So obviously, you have to build one system by itself and they cannot talk to each other. That means such a path forward was almost unscalable. Furthermore, most of the startup were not founded by founders with deep domain expertise. So the startup has to find the expert, talk to them, decode the knowledge, code it into the system. The entire process was very long, tedious in terms of time and resources. And this led to the collapse of the expert system and the start of the third AI winter. So we have this three boom and bust cycle, three AI winters. If you read Wikipedia and do a bit of research, you'll find that there's a lot more AI winters. Nonetheless, these are the three major dominant AI winter business cycle. In very recent times, we hit a breakthrough, or we might be getting out of future AI winters. And I want to describe this breakthrough to you. So what is this breakthrough? So this breakthrough is deep learning. It's one of the class of machine learning algorithm. Let's recap. The previous techniques that I talked about were attempts to talk to experts and learn about how experts behave and then going ahead to codifying these rules and then putting them into the computer. Unlike the previous technique, this deep learning technique models upon the human brain and then help the computers to learn like babies via a set of data. This is the opposite approach to the previous mentioned techniques in the previous AI winters. The idea originated in the 1940s with two researchers, McCollins and Pitts, who proposed this idea of modeling data structures and algorithms on human brains, what we call neural network today. Many researchers elaborate on those ideas to make algorithm faster, more accurate, and make better decisions. Since I'm not trying to do a comprehensive history on deep learning on neural network, let me give you a couple of key stories along the way just to give you a gist of the more recent times. Ian LeCun, who runs the Facebook AI Labs, used the neural networks to recognize the handwriting of poster code. His method takes a handwritten address of a poster code and automatically digitizing them. This is done in the 1980s. Picking up from that, Geoffrey Hinton, Yoswa Banjo, works on Deep Belief Network. Geoffrey Hinton is now part of the Google AI team and Yoswa Banjo is the university of Montreal. Their research leads to Google Search Voice. So this speech-to-text translation is a direct descendant of the deep belief neural networks. Another important significant contributing researcher from Germany is Jürgen Schmidt-Huber. And his work is about recurrent long short-term memory with deep forward neural networks. The basic is that your brains have many neurons connecting to many other neurons so why don't we write an algorithm that mimics this behavior and this structure? So continuing the path on the history of neural networks, Google decided to run an experiment. And as you might expect that Google can contribute using its economies of skill to run seemingly unfundable projects. And there are two dimensions of skill here. The first dimension of skill is around data. Google has a lot of emails, a lot of videos, and a lot of search results. Andrew Ng used YouTube videos for his experiment. At that time, he was a Stanford professor, so he got 10 million videos for his training set. The second dimension of the skill is computing power. Google loved distributed computing. He applied neural networks onto 16,000 course computers on 10 million videos for one week. Uh, that was done by Andrew Ng, by the way. Guess what? Guess what they found? And so, 
the first thing you find is cats. People love uploading cat videos. Out of 20,000 objects in the videos, the neural networks recognize 16% of these objects. Thousands of objects got recognized by this neural network. So here's the fascinating thing. We do not have an expert to teach you to identify a cat. We basically feed a bunch of data into the model, and the model learns to categorize the input, and so in this case, recognize cats and other similar objects. This is done without any guidance from an expert and without any rules. And so this forms the heart of the revolution. This is the big breakthrough of artificial intelligence. Just feed a bunch of data, and the computer will learn to classify it by itself. So if you ask the question, why are people so excited about neural networks or deep learning at this very juncture of time, when we have been working on this since the 1940s? And here's the answer. And the answer is a skill. Comparing to Ian LeCun's experiment, Andrew Ng's experiment has 1 million more computing cycles, 33,000 more pixels of data. So you can see that as computing power gets cheaper and cheaper and storage costs gets cheaper and cheaper, the resource required to train computers to use deep learning techniques becomes cheaper and cheaper as well. And because of that, Andrew Ng got a lot more funding, he's able to run more experiments, discover more applications, and so on and so forth with less resources required. And therefore, we start to see a lot of startups, a lot of projects using deep learning. So let me give you a sense of what is deep learning. I'll be using TensorFlow, which is a Google deep learning tool to show you. So the objective here is to learn to figure out whether we can classify or distinguish a set of patterns from a bunch of data. You can sort of see the portions of blue and orange using neural networks. So let's get started. On the right hand side, we see the orange dots and the blue dots. So the orange dots and the blue dots are data. Think of the orange data, orange dots as spam and the blue dots as non-spam. All the orange dots are offensive foreign posts and the blue dots are non-offensive foreign posts. So the orange dots can be the cats in the YouTube videos or the blue dots can be the dots in the YouTube videos. And all these categories are represented by these dots. The job of the neural network is to draw a boundary around these dots. On the left hand side, you can see that we select different types of data. The data can be email messages, forum posts, or pictures that we are trying to categorize. Now let's start to build the neural network. So you can see that I'm adding layers and each layer represents a layer of neural network. This is why we call deep learning. And deep learning represents the additional multiple layers that we are adding to the network. Then I'm going to add a number of neurons to each layer. And as I'm going to add an extra neuron to that specific layer, the neurons are being connected. What is going to happen is that the neural networks is going to train itself given the input of the existing data that we have feed to it. And this is going to set the connection strengths between each of the nodes. So as you can see, as I feed the data, that blue and orange lines connecting to each node will become darker or lighter depending on the connection strengths between each of the nodes. Now, let's see what these neurons are fundamentally doing. So I'm going to hit the play button here to start feeding the model data. And what you will see is the connection strengths between all the nodes are going to be adjusted. And then the output that results will appear as shaded portion. And the goal of, for the network is to draw a boundary around the blue dot in the middle and the orange dot separately. Notice that I only need to get a few iterations to draw that boundary. So that gives you an intuition of what these tools are doing. And that is, I haven't told the system what I'm trying to accomplish. 
all I have done is fed a bunch of data to the system into the specific data structure. And the computer has itself learned to set the connections weights between all these nodes in the network so that it can mathematically draw the boundaries between the blue dots and the orange dots. Now, I hope you can sense how the data structures and algorithm are doing in a deep learning system and what they can do. To give you a sense of the scale, we have a couple of hundreds connections up on the screen between the nodes of the network. If you have to buy a Nevada Drive computer card and run this, it most probably have about 27 million connections. If you recall Andrew Ng's YouTube cat project, it has tens of millions of connections. If you are feeling a little bit intimidated, you will know that your brain visual cortex has 10 to the power of six times more neurons than that. It will take a while before we can build a deep learning system to be as complicated as our human brain. Did I hear somebody say, phew, what a relief. That's one perspective. The other perspective is, whoa, this is exciting to think about that we are on that path to building more sophisticated system through bigger data and bigger neural networks. So how useful is deep learning in our everyday life? If you have a smartphone, you have Siri or Google Voice using machine learning. If you have someone buying from something from Amazon, the recommendation engine is using machine learning or deep learning. If you take a Grab or Uber, the pricing mechanism is powered by deep learning. Because deep learning has so productive at making applications better, companies are just applying deep learning and machine learning in every business unit, every department, and every country. So where is deep learning going to take us to? Let me give you an example of deep learning in navigation, search, in autonomous driving. George is the CEO of Karma.ai. He builds a self-driving car all by himself. Okay, you may say, ah, no big deal. Let me put this in context. In 2004, Dartmouth sponsored the first grand challenge of building a self-driving solution to navigate the Mahari Delta. They got 20 entries from leading universities and startups at the time, and the leading entry was from Carnegie Mellon, and the self-driving car sandstorms go for 7.5 miles out of 100 miles in the desert. Now, in 2007, Dartmouth sponsored a 60 miles city course challenge, and CMU took the top spot again and finished the course. So you can see the progress of autonomous driving with deep learning. Previously, only 7.5 miles in 2004. Now, 60 miles in 2007. This sets off an arm race for autonomous driving programs. Now, every huge major manufacturer has an autonomous driving programs with thousands of engineers. You can recall any major brands, Tesla, Grab, Uber, Google, and they have thousands of engineers working on this. Now, George has built a self-driving car all by himself using deep learning techniques. So you can see how advanced these techniques and data can enable one man to achieve this feat when there are thousands of engineers working on the same stuff in some of the best labs in the world. So George is able to do this thanks to open source. By the way, George's solution works. So that shows the promise of deep learning that one guy can build a self-driving car all by himself. And there are many other great examples of deep learning in NLP perception and so on and so forth. So moving from here, a lot of corporates and VCs are looking at startups and their products to see whether they can incorporate some deep learning techniques or machine learning techniques as part of their solution. So it seems that we are in the AI spring, that deep learning has made a fundamental breakthrough in all of the sub-AI disciplines. Hold on there, 
Hold on to your horses. Hold on. Yet, I want to let everybody know that as much as this is really exciting, we still have some cautious about the limitations of neural network. Or to really understand that if a pure deep learning application really works as if a child is learning stuff by observing all the data and making sense of it without any expert guiding it, then it will behave like this story. So, I was reading to my baby nephew about a story of a car that gets stuck and a car receives help from another helper. And the baby recognized that if he gets stuck, he will ask for help. And any loving person will come and help him. So, one day, he went cycling down the void deck. He was cycling so fast that his head hit the edge of the wall and his head was bleeding profusely. Fortunately, his mom and dad are medical professionals and they decided to stitch his head up. That leaves a small scar on his forehead and he cries a lot. And so I saw, I was like, oh dear, what happened to you? And instead of the baby telling me that he's he hit his head against the wall because he cycled very fast and ran out the edge of the wall, guess what he said? This is what he said. He pointed his head and said, Papa, Mama makes me pain. And so what does this example clearly illustrate? It illustrates the importance of really understanding how the child learns and how the child tells the story. If I have not asked his mom and dad what has happened, I wouldn't have any idea that the driving force behind his head injury is his fast cycling and his need for his parents' attention. And because the child is so young, he learns to tell from his recent memory instead of reviewing the mechanics of his fall. So let's get back to learn about the cautionary tale behind let's just nail every single problem using deep learning. Like the above example, if you purely apply the current deep learning without having a deep understanding of what you're trying to do, then this might happen. You might know the algorithm. There might come a day that you just feed the data with deep learning and something happened and you don't really know how and what caused the system to respond in ways you don't understand. So deep learning sometimes does not allow you to interpret the mechanics of your result. And this is the part that is lacking or what we call interpretability. And it is very important to learn to interpret the model, to know what triggers the outcome. So in certain use cases, we might be able to get a better sense of how do we apply deep learning to solve problems. And in this case, that is very different from the expert system or the supervised machine learning, where you basically understand and able to interpret results because you know what is in the system. And deep learning is what we call the black box model. While by contrast, the other model is the white box model. Having said that, deep learning is still a great tool to other tools of AI to solve problems. Like the old management saying, if you only have one hammer in your toolbox, then everything else looks like the nail. And as such, it is important to understand the business problem, make sense of it, use various computer science techniques, use skills like critical thinking, design thinking, econometric thinking to really build a deep solution to that problem. Thank you very much. And we have come to the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it so we can build a better world. This is Andrew Liu speaking and have a great day ahead.